Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Delegates representing 46 nations came to San Francisco on April 25, 1945. Representing almost 2,000 million people, more than 80% of humanity. All at war when the conference was begun, they came with hope born of common struggle. The United Nations was formed in 1945. Associated in the popular mind with world diplomacy and peacekeeping, it's the one place the entire world comes together in a single body. But conflicts continue to break out across the world. Heavy fighting in Gaza. The IDF saying it expects the war with Hamas to likely last throughout the entirety of 2024. Civilians keep dying and human rights keep being violated. In the early hours of this morning, Russian airstrikes killed 16 civilians sheltering in a farm in Marek Mizrin. The UN estimates almost a million people have fled their homes since December because of the fighting. That's despite all of the speeches and all of the resolutions in New York. Given the scale of the loss of human life in Gaza and in Israel in such a short amount of time, the Secretary General has today delivered a letter to the President of the Security Council invoking Article 99 of the Charter of the United Nations. So, what exactly is the UN? What's its role today? And with the body seemingly impotent in the face of conflicts all over the world, has the time come for major reform? The UN is, is broke. It's perennially broke, uh, which is why it is so effectively cannot be very operational in, in, in many contexts. To try and answer those questions, I'm joined by Yusi Han Him Aki. He's the Professor of International History and Politics in the Geneva Graduate School and author of The United Nations, A Very Short Introduction. Professor, this is a very basic question, but I think we all have an idea what the UN is and people use the term the UN in normal conversation, but like everything else, in reality, they mightn't have a clue what it really is. Can we start right at the beginning? How did the UN come about and when? Right. So the, the, the UN Charter, which is sort of the, the constitution, if you will, of, of the United Nations, was was uh, approved by 52 three countries in, in the summer of 1945 at the closing stages of, of World War II. So it was uh, in June of, of 1945 in San Francisco. I mean, the roots go back in part to my hometown in, in Geneva, Switzerland, which was the host, uh, host city of the League of Nations, 
prior to the United Nations, and the, the UN was sort of built upon the ashes of uh, of the League, which had been founded in the closing stage at the end of World War One. The, the League of Nations obviously had failed preventing World War Two, which was supposedly its main task was to keep the world a safe and, and peaceful place. So it had failed in that. So the idea of the UN was to, in effect, give it another go, uh, if, if you will. That was the primary rationale behind the UN and its founding was to, to give it another go to, 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 to prevent World War Three. I mean, that was the essence of the, of the program. Now, so, so that's where the roots. The other point about the actual word or term, you, the United Nations, we have to remember is that it was uh, uh, used as a phrase that described the allies against the Axis. So, so it was the first declaration of the United Nations was issued in January 1942, and it basically talked about things like unconditional surrender and building a peaceful world uh, against aggressors in the future. And very much the roots, the roots coming from, well, as you said, the ashes of the League of Nations and that came from the First World War and the United Nations came from the ashes of the Second World War. So it's always has this connection with achieving world peace. I just wonder, is that still its role today, maintaining peace? Can we still say that that the original mission has, has been maintained or has it grown into something else? I mean, it is much bigger. And today, like you say in the beginning, when you say, what is the United Nations? Uh, it is not one thing. I mean, it's not one easily definable object in the in the universe, but rather it's this whole large conglomerate of, of different agencies, different uh, funds, different organizations that all carry the logo of the UN but do very, very different things. So they, you know, there is a refugee organization, there is a peacekeeping organization, there is uh, there's the World Health Organization, which in the last few years, because of COVID, was of course very much in the headlines. Uh, and there are any number of other organizations, you know, UNICEF for, for, for children, UNESCO for art, for, for, for culture and, and, and so forth. So it, it has a lot of different uh, elements within the UN. It's it's at the same time, I would say though, that most of those elements grow from the understanding and the changing understanding of what what security is. So what, what are the key elements in providing and making up for a secure world? And preventing war, of course, it seems very simple, you know, to prevent war. And, and that's the end of it. That's what the Security Council is, is there for, is to, is to then stop aggressors uh, from, from going about attacking other countries and, and, and so forth. However, I think even in the beginning in 1945, you read the, carefully the, the UN Charter, the, the preamble, it talks about, yes, peace and war, but it also talks about human rights. It talks about uh, effectively development, about economic differences. Um, It talks about equality or inequality rather as being effectively one of the causes of conflict. So all of those things are already embedded in the UN Charter. But how to put those things into practice um, is something that has evolved over the last 75 years and has led to the sort of proliferation of different organizations that do different things, but ultimately, arguably, everything is connected to, to peace and security. This plethora of agencies, and you mentioned UNICEF, and we see mm-hmm. many, we see this UN logo in many places. 
who politically controls these these agencies or or are they somehow because sometimes they do seem to be mm-hmm. operating independently with a life of with a life of their own and obviously some countries if if they find themselves at the other end of the UN's wrath they they, they would accuse the UN and these UN bodies of being partisan uh, certainly. I mean, I, I think it depends a little bit on, on, on different organizations. But um, so if you started at, at the top, of course, we do have the Security Council. And that's the, the board of directors of the, of the United Nations. And what is represented there and what is represented in just about every different UN agency and organization is effectively nation states. I mean, the nation states are the, are the keys to, to, to how the UN functions, what its powers are and how effective ultimately it can be. They are the source of revenue, the main source of funding. There are, of course, other sources of funding as, as well, but, um, you know, philanthropy and, and so forth. Uh, but but for the most part, it is the nation states that provide. So then if you think in terms of um, of who has the power, who has the most influence, that is connected usually, in most cases, to the size of the country and the size of the contribution it can make. So traditionally, of course, what we have is, is one country that has made the largest contributions to just about every aspect of the United Nations um, work, and that's the United States which has been the, the, the richest country in the, in, in the world over the last 75, since, since World War II, in effect. And it is, so it is the country that has, has made the most consistent contributions. Um, and, and with those, it depends a little bit in, in different, you know, different organizations. Uh, the budget also can be related to voting power. In, in certain organizations, but those those are ultimately um, limited. The voting, however, also and decision making, what's the most famous example of, of, of what creates difficulties and deadlock is, is how the system works in the in the Security Council, where, of course, we have five countries that, uh, that carry the, the so-called veto power, which means that any UN Security Council uh, resolution uh, proposed can be vetoed by one of the, those five countries. That's the United States, yes, but it's also Russia, China, France, and uh, and the United Kingdom. So some countries are more equal in in that sense in the in the decision making process, especially when it comes down to to the Security Council. That's an amazing uh, way of putting it. I mean, I also notice that the Security Council is the only authority in the UN, the only body with authority to issue resolutions that are binding on on member states. And that phrase that you use, you know, more equal, it does seem, it does seem a strange thing, especially when you see that, uh, you know, Russia, China, and the United States are all permanent members of the Security Council, and and their their interests rarely meet. I wonder, is the Security Council the strength of the UN? Is it necessary, or is it in fact the Achilles heel of the UN that makes it impotent? It is, yes, it's the Achilles heel. If you think of the ongoing conflicts, uh, the, the most mediatized conflicts that are ongoing at the moment, the Ukraine, for example, obviously Russia being directly involved in that conflict has vetoed every possible resolution that the UN Security Council could have made. So so that obviously is, uh, is an issue, and it's not a new issue. I mean, the countries, one of the, these five countries have each of them at some point, one point or another, issued vetoes to block uh, resolutions that they consider to be against their interests. 
So, so that is clearly something that has happened. The United States did it so recently with, uh, with regards to the, um, the humanitarian ceasefire um, demanded by, <clears throat> by the UN Secretary General, in effect, in, in, uh, in relation to Gaza. But there are other examples if you go to, to, to the past and, and, and look at the last 75 years. So, so that clearly limits the effectiveness of the Security Council, the demand for these five powers to be unanimous on something, and as you said, they really are uh, unanimous on on anything, um, and so so that creates a, a difficulty. So so that's one thing. At the same time, um, without the Security Council, it's hard to see how the UN could function uh, or could have any kind of significant influence in the world. That, that the UN Security Council has of course, played an important role in, in any number of issues and, and, and conflicts, but also um, over, the, over the past 75 years, we go, go through, you know, we can look at the history of, of things like, you know, peacekeeping operations, which come under the, ultimately under the Security Council mandates. So all of those peacekeeping operations depend upon um, blessing and effectively by the, by the UN Security Council. Um, so, you, you have all of that. The Security Council also, it does other things than pass resolutions about, about war, peace and, and sanctions and, and things like that. It also is the, it's, it's the organ that approves the, the election of the, of the Secretary General. So it decides who is going to be uh, Secretary General uh, at any given time, which also, of course, means that then if, if those five countries have a veto power, the personality of the of the secretary general at any given moment of time he has to be acceptable he or she in the future maybe uh, has to be acceptable to uh, all the five veto veto nations and then the other thing is that to admit new members to the united nations that uh, has to be approved by the security council so effectively i mean this is where uh, things like you know the, the question of the say the two states to solution in uh, in the middle east with israel and palestine there is a veto that can be can block that say veto from the united states can block a palestinian statehood at, at any moment as, as has been the case in the in the past so it ensures that at least these five countries which have significant influence across the across the globe um at least they, as long as they're in the Security Council, there is a diplomatic potential, which uh, I think is important. I think we're going to see that to some extent uh, in, in action, perhaps in, in the coming months and, and, and years, both in, in, in the case of Ukraine, but and also perhaps in the case of the Middle East. Uh, it's a solution that historically was meant to correct the wrongs of the past, and it reflects it still reflects the situation in, in terms of power relations in 1945, which is another question always asked is, well, why are Britain, why is France, why are they permanent five nations with veto power and so forth, if you think about their diminished global influence since 1945? Well, that's because it's the whole system sort of reflects the world as it was back in 1945. It is remarkable that a country like India with uh, a powerful economy, powerful military and vast population isn't isn't a permanent member and there's no permanent member from Africa or Latin America or, the, or, or what people would call the global south. 
many people, I suppose, would associate in their imagination the UN with the General Assembly in 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 New York, the hundred ninety three member states, and they've all got their names in front of them, and they associate them with that. Is that an important body, or is it just a talking shop, really? It's an important body in the sense that it it controls um, it controls the UN budget. Uh, it controls a um, a number of the of the different organs of the UN are uh, not run by the Security Council, but ultimately uh, uh, sort of uh, answer to the UN General Assembly. It is an important body in in that sense. It's also an important. The, I mean, we may think of the talking shop derisively as something that's just hot air and, and so forth. In fact, that is also an important element. I think in terms, there is no other such place where every annually we can see the leaders of, of, of the good and the great, but also smaller countries come to the New York and, and, and there's often we see these issues raised that probably if there wasn't such a, such an assembly in existence uh, would never be never be heard of. And you mentioned the Global South. This is where the so-called Global South gets its voice heard, or the countries of the Global South, which is not obviously not the one <laughs> one block, uh, one united block at all. And 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 this is where the diversity of the world comes comes across very very clearly. Speech is also, I mean, on the negative side, it is also a place where some leaders can issue propaganda statements um, and 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 so forth. So so it is. A, uh, not a, a straightforward mechanism. The world, there have always been conflicts in the world and there are conflicts in the world that we, we don't pay much attention to in, in the West. I mean, I know there's conflict in, in, in Sudan and places like the Congo uh, and other places across the world. Some of them are what we would call civil wars and other wars are between states and and it's, it's even more complicated than that. But there are two wars, obviously, that there's a lot of interest across the political spectrum in the West for various reasons. And one is the, I suppose, very conventional war in 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 Ukraine, uh, where Russia has has invaded its 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 neighbor, whatever people think of that, and uh, and and has territorial claims on on its neighbor. If not, uh, depending who you listen to in Russia, some people are asking for you know believe that Ukraine must be wiped from the map. And the other high profile conflict is, is what's going on in Israel Palestine and and, speci- and specifically in Gaza at the moment. The UN seems quite impotent in both cases, and. It has been cited, I've spoken to people on this podcast and they've said, well, you know, it's a damnation of our world peacekeeping efforts and of diplomacy that both of these conflicts carry on without restraint and without any real prospect of peace. Can the UN play a positive role in either of these conflicts or both? Yeah, so if, if you take the two in, in, in terms of, if you think about Ukraine and, and Russia's invasion of Ukraine in, in February 2022, that was of course preceded eight years earlier by Russia's takeover of the Crimean Peninsula on the Black Sea, which used to be Ukrainian territory. So clear violations of, of national sovereignty took place. And national sovereignty is something that is enshrined in the UN Charter as the, one of the main, if not the main principle of uh, the United Nations, after all, is, is what it is. Um, so clearly there have been uh, various violations of the spirit, of the, of the facts of, of, the, of the UN um, Charter and, and so forth. And yet, the U, what can the UN do? 
uh, about that. And I, I think that's where the sort of the relative powerlessness of 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 the UN as an institution um, has come come clear. And I think we need to remember, however, that the UN is not is not never has been, never will be a sort of a one world government that can issue orders to its member states except in very exceptional circumstances. So, I mean, two, in two ways, at least, it, it is very important, or maybe three ways. One is the, the fact that we, we discuss this openly. Everything is discussed, at, whether it's at the General Assembly, whether it's at the Security Council. Everything is effectively out in the open. Of course, people disagree on facts and, and, and the morality of everything and, and so forth. But everything is discussed. And I think that already is something. It's not a solution to, to anything necessarily, but I, I think it does have some impact in terms of, of attitudes and, and in terms of justifications that, that, that can be can be can be given. So that's that's number one. Number two is that it does the UN does provide a potential service, a diplomatic service, in a way that one country rarely can. Um, and so the UN Secretary General, for example, can, or, or his special envoys and, and, and so forth, can be the, the interlocutors between parties that, that clearly don't want to talk to each other. It's not the only one. I mean, and if you've seen the, the ceasefires in, in, in Gaza, for example, they were probably brokered by, uh, not by the UN directly, but, but through Qatar and, and, and so forth. But but it, it does provide that, and it does provide a uh, a setting, a legitimate setting for it in terms of international um, acceptance, and also well-tested mechanisms of mediation, of, of peacemaking, of, of, of treaty making, and, and and all that. So, so that whole whole thing is is is, is equally equally important. Uh, a lot more people would have died already, both in, in as a consequence of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what's going on in, in, in Gaza, in, in Israel, Palestine, and so forth, if there was no UN, if there wasn't an, an UNRWA uh, that has been there since the 1940s to, to support Palestinian refugees. Um, of course, it doesn't solve the problem itself, but I think it alleviates, and I think most of us would agree that it's, the less people die, the better. And, and so if we have this kind of uh, uh, a mechanism, in equally, you know, UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency and any other agencies have helped the suffering of uh, millions of Ukrainian refugees that have had to flee. And this is not just there, it's also in, all the, in the context of all the other conflicts you, you mentioned earlier, whether it's in Sudan, whether it's in Congo, whether it's, it's, it's somewhere else. It's often the UN that, or one of the UN agencies that steps up to the plate to help. So, so the UN is, yes, no, it doesn't have all the solutions, but it, it's still, it, it is, it's, it's, a, it's an important mechanism. And I think without it, things would look much less hopeful. Would you still say that the UN has been a success? It's a work in progress. After 80 years, it remains a work in progress. And it's been a work in progress in part because its, it's success has been that it has attracted a membership that is total, it's truly global. You mentioned 193 countries. That covers the whole globe. It's, they started with 50, uh, 51 or in, in, in 1945. So that's an almost four-time increase in the number of membership. And that is uh, one obvious success, obvious, obvious standard of legitimacy. An organization that can attract and keep, nobody has left the UN 
So it doesn't have the same um, problem as, say, the League of Nations in the pre-World War II era had. That you know, countries came and left and and, and treated it as an as a sort of a revolving door that you could. The, the UN doesn't have. It is in, in it carries a certain credibility across the globe that no other organization really does. And I think that that is one of its its successes. That's one of the things that makes allows the UN to act in ways that are, are important from a humanitarian perspective, but but also from any number of other other issues. It's the one organization that ultimately can bring countries together to deal with challenges like the like the climate uh, climate change and climate crisis and so forth. Now, where does it go wrong? It goes wrong in in because its power and its funding depends upon nation states, and nation states remain the most powerful organs or, or, or in in the world today they often not they don't have the power or the or the resources to actually act in the same kind of decisive manner as say the UK government can or or uh, or, the, or the you know or even the European Union can because it's a smaller uh, a smaller unit uh, the UN doesn't have an army you know so it can't send the army to fight it doesn't really have a police force. It can issue, it can start peacekeeping missions, but those will always be temporary and and so forth. So it doesn't. It's not the same kind of player as a nation state with the same kind of hierarchical uh, organization and, and regular elections and, and and so forth. But it is a kind of a hybrid of of, of all those things. Uh, How would you improve the UN? Or is that a is that t- just too big of a question to ask anybody? But it, it's something that's been sort of being debated all, all, all around in terms of the, the question of how to reform the UN is is uh, is a sort of a perennial, endless endless question. And in some ways, it's it's gone through all these different reforms and 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 so forth over the past past almost eighty years now. I think today the the the, the two big challenges one has to yes has to do with what we already referred to the the Security Council a uh, a P five country. For example, blatantly violates uh, some of the principles of of the Charter of of the United Nations and, and the principle of national sovereignty, which is one of the the key codes there. The fact, the simple fact that the countries that join the UN basically make a pledge that they're not going to go to war against an other member state of of the United Nations. But then this happens, and then so how do you deal with that? What is the mechanism? Is there uh, is there something? I think there is. I'm not, I don't have the solution to this, but but I think that is one of the big big challenges of of the UN going forward. When you know, and it's become especially clear since 2022 with uh, with Russia invading Ukraine. But it is not the only time. <clears throat> that this sort of thing has happened. So, so how how do we deal with that? Well, how can we reform the Security Council in a way that would allow cases like that to 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 be put forward in a in a in a decisive decisive manner? So that that clearly is, is one. The other thing that is is very obvious is is that the UN is is spread very thin in in across the world because it has so many. If you take out the UN. Um, so organizational chart, you see how many acronyms there are for different things uh, for uh, and, and, and you know and that is something that has multiplied over, over, over decades. And with the inevitable consequence that some of those organizations, agencies and, and funds, they duplicate their work. So there are many, many humanitarian organizations. There are many organizations that, that, that address issues of development and, and, and so forth. 
So how do you uh, make the UN if effectively more streamlined or, or Kofi Annan, the pre one of the previous secretary general had this idea, you have to make the UN to be able to deliver as one. So we have challenges. Um, and, and so how do you make pull all the resources of the UN together to, to deliver as one? I think that is a very, very difficult challenge. And I think then there's the, the other one, of course, is that that's and that's and, and so on and so forth. In fact, the UN uh, has very limited budget, uh, which is why it is so effectively cannot be very operational in, in, in many contexts. So, so again, I mean, that's, that's a very, very difficult issue to, to address because with more funding usually comes more influence. And if nation states are the source of the funding, the more you pay, the more you expect. And, and that's, that's going to be a very, very difficult road to uh, sort of logic to, to, to break. Are you certain at this stage, that the UN will continue? That it, are you certain that it has a future? That there are no global forces that will fracture this institution apart? I am 90% certain that the UN will, will celebrate not only its 80th anniversary in 2025, but its 100th anniversary. Uh, 20 years after that, uh, for a simple reason that um, it is a um, it's a go-to, well-tested, um, and yet because it is ultimately, I think one of its strengths, which is also its weakness, the fact that it it has limited power, but it is useful. And so from the perspective of, yes, I, and I understand where the question comes from in terms of, of we see all this international discord between different countries and, and big, big countries in particular, United States, Russia, China, and, and so forth. So, of course, that is, that is disconcerting. But if you look in the past, we know this is not the first time. Um, that we've seen, you know, the UN survived, some would argue even thrived to some extent during the Cold War, which was supposedly a very, very tense um, international environment. Um, and I think today's international environment, while tense in many ways, is not, is a different and not in the same way brought by by prospects of uh, nuclear wars and all that point is why i also think it's going to become perhaps even more significant is that we talk today in contrast to the sort of bipolar world as we used to think about the cold war today we are clearly in a much more multipolar situation and that multipolarity i think makes the un more significant in as as a medium of multilateral diplomacy uh, in, in particular, a, 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 way, a, a place in which, you know, diplomacy can, even when there are significant differences, diplomacy can be, uh, can be conducted, um, differences can be aired, let's say, in the General Assembly and, and so forth. Solutions will not always be found, that's, that's clear. But the, the, uh, the very existence of the UN, I think, is important and will probably become more so as we go forward with challenges like climate crisis, and, and so forth. Professor Yussi Hanamaki, thank you very much. When you get an Irish independent digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. For a limited time, you'll also receive a 75 euro O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. 
Irish Independent. Terms and conditions apply.